Supercast is produced in Melbourne, Australia, also known as Nam, the land of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional custodians of the lands across Australia where this podcast was recorded. We pay respect to their elders past and present and recognise Australian Aboriginal culture as one of the world's oldest storytelling traditions. Earth and the open space that have existed well before us are really essential. And let's not forget that we are nature, <laughs> you know, we are human beings as part of nature. Call me romantic, maybe now the new generations, especially of uh, urbanites, they grow in apartments, they are detached from the landscape. But I still think that this is a bit of a myth, because after all, we still walk through our cities, we still go somewhere. Even if people don't go so much to beaches or mountains, they still walk in the open space. And to me, it's unavoidable to be related to the open space. You're listening to Supercast, a podcast from Assemble Papers in collaboration with RMIT Design Hub, exploring the sensory and embodied experience of built and unbuilt environments. Doing a London guide, you do have to treat it almost like fresh terrain. Meet Ben. My name is Ben Olins, and I am one of the people that runs Herb Lester Associates. We are an independent travel publishing company. You can have an identical experience in pretty much anywhere. And I don't want that, and we don't want that. We want to have an experience that's true to the place we're visiting. I remember this incredible feeling of openness. Even when I was in the city of London, it felt like an open space in a way that Melbourne doesn't to me. I feel like our parkland and our nature is very segregated. I'm thinking, like I'm picturing Flagstaff Gardens in my head. It's very green and lush and feels like, kind of feels like an oasis from the city. But then as soon as you turn around and cross the road, you're back in in what feels to me like a really confined sense of an urban space. I'm interested in that attitude of, it's almost like flicking a switch between nature and urban. And so that's why I wanted to interview Ben Ollins. Ben produced a map called Wild London. Well, Wild London is a, it's a guide on one side is a map and the other side there is a list of a lot of places that are a way to experience nature in the centre of London. There are 86 places and they vary from nature reserves to parks to uh, city farms and and they're spread across London. London is vast and very, very densely populated, but you're really never far from green space. Pretty much wherever you are, there's, there's, there's green space. It's a very, I don't think it's perceived particularly, apart from maybe the Royal Parts, it's a very green city, but it really is. And that idea was really appealing to us that you can have half an hour for lunch and sit in the park pretty much wherever you are and that be surrounded by trees and birds and and so that's really the the idea of that being able to step away from 
cars rushing past and to look at a scrap of grass and some dirt is, is a break, it's restorative. And I think particularly in cities that are being built up, this idea that nature is still there, very close to hand, is very appealing. You see nature take root everywhere. You see it in walls and in gutters and in every space, every space it possibly can take hold, it does. And it's kind of a reminder that, you know, this is a, this is a war and it will win. We're visitors here and this is what will survive. This, this, is, this greenery is waiting, it's poised, it's, it's relentless in the way it um, is trying to take root. And in a very small way, I think you get that from sitting, eating a, a sandwich, looking at some ducks or whatever. I think it's a reminder that this stuff is, is there and always has been there and always will be there, no matter what else goes on. I have a friend who uh, lived in London for a long time, but she lived on a houseboat. I feel like I had uh, constant updates on London weather, uh, London seasons. Was it raining? Was it windy? How it was all going? But when we think of London, we think of this massive metropolis of however many million people. We don't think of the fact that it's got an entire river system going through it. Culturally as well, walking is such a part of, um, I guess, British culture as well. And it's funny that we are kind of colonial outposts, but I don't feel like walking is as kind of practised here. And so that's how you have these more demarcated zones where um, there's parkland and then it stops and then it's road where cars are privileged, which has a huge impact on the built environment, I think. Yeah, we have this myth of the... Um, the dangerous bush that's sort of going to eat you alive if you venture into it and it's interesting how we also make the distinction between parkland or nature on the one hand and bush on the other and it's very aesthetically unappreciated and yeah we have this idea of good greenery like we have this idea of like a good lawn a manicured green space we like want to tame the pests and the weeds and and we have this like privileging of what's good green. It really uh, reflects back to us the problems with understanding the urbanness and nature as two completely separate realms so that urban nature is constructed and has to be kind of built from scratch. You see this in greenfield developments where a developer will literally take down all the trees, all the natural vegetation, and then put it back in uh, by using European species mm. and uh, climate and landscape inappropriate uh, vegetation. Another problem with creating that philosophical mental b- binary between the built and the unbuilt, the the urban and the wild, is that if what we have in cities is not nature, then there is no reason to preserve anything. There is no reason to think about the urban ecosystems, the species that have adapted to living with people, urban waterways, uh, the quality of air in cities, any of the flora and fauna um, in the cities. Yeah, the, this idea of breaking down the 
the binary and understanding the connection between, you know, this so-called out there um, wilderness and the city is something I think we've really always been concerned with at Assemble Papers. I feel this intersection between art and science and the environment is a really interesting one because it's a way that we can, um, in some ways, break down this idea of the sublime nature as something that is, you know, to be attained or something pure that is sort of like unsullied by human um, engagement because that doesn't exist anymore. Like even in the sites that we privilege um, as, you know, kind of national parks, they've been intervened with, like there's human footprints and tracks everywhere. You know, Simone de Beauvoir in the 1940s or 50s uh, travels to the US for the first time and she reports very sadly that she's been to the bottom of Grand Canyon and there's a phone booth there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. She was very disappointed. (laughs) And so from this point of view, in the way we practice normally every day is to try to consider forms of repair, like um, if you are designing a house or a building in a sensitive, in an ecologically sensitive area, how can you design this building in a way that it can be contributing to the regenerations of the endemic uh, plants uh, or species uh, or flowers uh, or natural ecology that exists there. So we were advised, well, yeah, this is interesting, but This is not about this exhibition. This exhibition is about uh, the documentation of some remote, uh, sometimes less remote uh, or maybe less accessible types of landscapes. And uh, we would like uh, you to design a space that is conveying a sense of uh, uneasiness. This is Mauro Baracco, an architect who, together with Louise Wright, designed the space that contains the Superfield exhibition. Well, the brief that we received had a visual description of what the space might be like that was very different to what came about and how we interpreted it. When we heard the work (laughs) and when we thought about working in this space, what we were quite also cognizant of not making an object in the space that could be confused as an artwork, But I suppose our response became less about building sort of spaces and more about manipulating this large space to create a spatial quality that would talk to the works. Making it feel like, you know, the ceiling and the floor were sort of pressing in on you. We were aiming at a sense of, you know, expansiveness, uh, a little bit uncomfortable perhaps with this presence above your head, given that the works are quite confronting orally. We wanted to make it almost as if the building was sort of being squashed in on you. So there was a spatial manipulation and that's why the floor um, was attempted to be as if the concrete floor was raising up. And the ceiling was an initial idea that carried through, but I think it became more sophisticated as, as we sort of went along. Um, it was a very uh, initial response to sort of have this large presence, this large fabric um, in the space, which was a response to 
to the brief, but also to the high ceilings of this space and just how to, you know, use that to our advantage. And through the capability of this scrim to both reveal and conceal light, you can at different times see and then not see the 40 to 50 speakers that we have in the ceiling, bringing the sound into you. So sometimes you're standing on the mound and feeling rain coming down on you, or standing on the mound and feeling the sense of lapping water coming up to your feet. Kate Rhodes and Fleur Watson are co-curators at RMIT Design Hub. So it's actually, I think, been an incredible handshake between exhibition designers and sound makers and curators in the space to bring audiences, uh, you know, a kind of ensemble to wear almost in the space, to really help guide you through some very unusual sound making. I think what's really interesting too, perhaps, to reveal to people is that it wasn't that easy. <laughs> there was quite a lot of toing and froing. And I think it's very interesting when we talk about, we did write this brief, for example, and Philip and Madeline came with these words that they felt were very uh, important, this kind of, it should be difficult, it should be arduous, it should have this um, sense of what it takes to get to remote conditions. And with that came a certain kind of, um, in a way, interpretation of what it might look like. And when Louise and Mauro took that brief, as is what happens in a design process, they came back with a very different interpretation. We are increasingly become more divorced from nature, if, if you wish, to the extent that we think that nature is uh, something outside, always outside of us. So the idea of this exhibition was actually to, to have people kind of um, moved, surprised, but not in a romantic uh, or pretty way. Surprised also in a kind of, maybe not, not scary, but uh, definitely an easy way. And so we addressed this request by trying to work especially on the, um, on the space. We're walking around the Design Hub gallery through Superfield. And so what we have done was um, to hang uh, this screen, which is uh, uh, considerably lower in the, the ceiling, the height of the ceiling. And we also designed, uh, we wanted to have the floor raised and it creates point of compression. For instance, we really wanted to have a point of compression in, in this room where people can stand on the top of the mound and at the same time are compressed by the weight of uh, the speakers which are hovering above the screen. And my, one of my first questions when we first met with the curators but also with the Design Hub curators was, uh, why did you ask us uh, to be involved for this exhibition? And they say, oh, yeah, we know that you have been always involved with uh, this idea of integration between architecture and landscape architecture, which is, um, which is true, um, which also reflects uh, a long um, uh, research we've been doing in the past. It was, a, I would say, in the end, the natural extensions of uh, the fact that we are interested in architecture in integrations with landscape. 
what we do in our uh, practice is usually also to try to advocate for a role for architecture to be capable of also regenerating, repairing. Um, you know, this is the title that we have assigned to the forthcoming Venice Biennale. We are the curators for the Australian Pavilion of the Venice Biennale that is going to open late May this year, and the title is Repair. So how can architecture repair be conducive to ecological, urban ecological, natural system repair? How can architecture be working in, in synteny, in tune, in, um, in integrations with the repair of uh, Let's, let's say the natural system, and mind you, when I say natural, I don't necessarily mean the nature of the untouchable parts, which in this world uh, hardly exist, but nature in terms of uh, open vegetated space, okay? From the Renaissance onwards, uh, our society has always been driven by the idea of uh, being in control of things. We have uh, built up uh, cities, environments, urban environments, we are, which, uh, of course, are allowing people to be urbanized, yet at the same time has really, have really been designed with a scientific uh, uh, approach to the extent that uh, even today, the cities that we are living today, they are still the product of an engineering mentality. You know, we needed to separate ourselves from from the water and so we need the, the system of the gutter and and the water then is collected down into the sewage system and in the you know into the system and lately thank God because of the climate change we are starting to rethinking of all this and so I argue that we have done damages in the last 500 years we have done all, of course, you know, it's difficult to argue that uh, beautiful buildings designed in neoclassical times and in Renaissance times are, have been damaging because they are considered like uh, amazing example of history of architecture. Yet at the same time, to me, they, uh, you know, they are showing also some damages. And from Renaissance onwards, the role of the architect as the personality behind the building has become stronger and stronger. Whereas before, in medieval times, there was an idea of community. There was no an idea of one single architect, but a community building up together. If you look at some of the beautiful medieval towns, you don't, you don't necessarily have uh, big names of architects to that match with buildings, but you have a beautiful towns that have been designed in much more sustainable, much more resilient way, uh, following the slope of the hill and, and so on. So there was a knowledge that has been lost in the name of a scientific progression. And this scientific progression has ultimately generated the towns that now we are trying to dismantle, or more than to dismantle, to regenerate. This is why I have been interested in that, simply because I think that uh, earth uh, and the open space that have existed well before us are really essential. So typically, in the past, what we've had is this kind of very um, segregated way of designing cities. So, you know, we have a green space here. And then we have, you know, we do this over here and we do that over there. And now we realize that we, that doesn't work very well. We need to be more multifunctional. In the next episode of Supercast, we're stretching our legs. Okay, so my name is Jonathan Daly and um, I call myself an urbanist and environmental psychologist.
In terms of the public spaces, urban greening is going to be absolutely critical to the future of cities um, for a number of reasons. On you know, hot days, oppressively hot days, we need shade in our cities. And, and then that links to how comfortable it is to walk. And if uh, people are walking, then we're a healthier um, society as well. And that, you know, has, there's so many benefits that, that come out of this. We will see the natural environment woven more into the, the fabric of the built environment. Supercast is produced by Assemble Papers and supported by RMIT Design Hub. Hosted by Eugenia Lim, Jana Perkovic and Beck Fari. That's me. I'm also the audio producer. Thanks to Simon Meish for recording the RMIT Design Hub Talk series. Supercast theme music is composed by After Midnight Luminata and supplied to us by the Houses in Motion label. For more Supercast, head to supercast.fm.